from a leadership perspective, I would say there's some things you can delegate and there's other things you better be involved in and trust your gut on, on those kind of things. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode of War Docs, we speak with retired Navy Rear Admiral and Medical Service Corps Officer Terry J. Moulton. Admiral Moulton served as the Deputy Surgeon General of the Navy, as well as the Deputy Chief of the Bureau of Medicine and Surgery. Admiral Moulton talks about his deployment lessons learned aboard the USS Nimitz, as well as his experience of being in the Pentagon on 9-11 and providing on-site medical support. Terry has held numerous strategic leadership positions in military medicine and provides some excellent advice for those advancing in roles with increased levels of accountability and responsibility. Admiral Moulton also shares his significant understanding of how enhanced multi-service markets and managed care support contractors can enable a ready medical force and a medically ready force while also focusing on day-to-day healthcare delivery. Find out more about Rear Admiral Moulton and our previous guests on our website, wardoxpodcast.com. I'm your host, retired Army urologist Doug Soderdahl, and I'm joined today by my co-host, retired Army Major General Jeff Clark, a family medicine physician and president of the Wardox Board of Directors. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Navy Rear Admiral Terry J. Moulton to Wardox. Terry, thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you. I'm uh, happy to be here. Terry, it's good to talk with you again. First question, can you kind of tell us a little bit about your growing up, your early years, and how you came to join our Navy? I'm a Air Force brat that my, I grew up, born at Lackland Air Force Base Hospital in San Antonio. For the first 14 years of my life, I was a Air Force brat, Homestead, Florida, San Antonio, Texas, Mather Air Force Base, California, Lowry Air Force Base, moving around with my dad, Kadena in Okinawa. And then he retired in 74. We moved back to his hometown in Nashville, Tennessee. And I went to high school there. And then I went off to college. And after college, I said, I sort of missed that lifestyle. I missed the base exchange. We used to go to the movies for 35 cents. And I just enjoyed that lifestyle. I didn't realize I did. I told my dad, you will never catch me in the surf. But after college, I just missed it. Another thing that was happening about that time was, remember the movie, Officer and a Gentleman with uh, Richard Gere and... Deborah Winger. And so I wanted to go fly airplanes and, and that looked exciting and went down to the recruiting station and they said, right, let's take this test. I didn't pass it. I go, Hey, how about my career field, the hospital administration? Do you have any openings there? And they said, well, we don't normally take people with bachelor's degrees, but we'll give you a shot. And then I got picked up and off to Newport, Rhode Island. I went. Joined for three years, stayed 37. So let's talk about those first couple of assignments. What were your roles and responsibilities? And and what did you learn from a leadership standpoint early in your career? So my first assignment was Naval Hospital Philadelphia. And I didn't get a selection. I didn't get a top three pick. They just said, welcome to Navy. You're going to Naval Hospital Philadelphia. Never been to Philly. So off I went brand new ensign 
and finished officer indoctrination school, reported in, and was assigned to internal review. Didn't know the organization. Boy, was I great. And what happened was a, a bunch of MSCs, senior medical service corps officers, and and almost just the whole officer corps and the chiefs community just took me under their wing and got me started in learning about the organization. What is a joint commission? What is an inspector general inspection? And I got involved in some collateral duties and began learning about the organization. And about a year into it, they assigned me to the patient administration department, which was a lieutenant commander level job. And I was an ensign. So I had to learn, learn a lot pretty fast. So, but in the Navy, you have a tendency to get a lot of responsibility early on. So that was great. I learned a lot about mentorship and coaching. My director for administration's name was John Gallus, and I always wanted to make him proud. And he was really good at not answering my questions, but posing them from a perspective of what do you think? And what's your option? How do you approach it? Things that you might consider. So really a good foundation. I was there for about two years total. And they said, hey, you need to call your detailer. Detailer is someone who Navy medicine officer assignments will assign you to your next position. And they really track you in your career and try to give you opportunities and build your skill sets as you go. So I called the detailer and they said, how would you like to go to Hawaii? Hawaii. Let me call my wife. But that sounds good. So I called her and off we went. Navy Medical Clinic, Pearl Harbor. And got started there, was given some assignments, patient administration and manpower management, and lots of responsibility, good people to surround yourself with. And my dad had always told me, find a good chief. A chief will help you through. As a young ensign and a JG, I had lots of good chiefs. I had one that I'm still in touch with today. Command Master Chief was Punta B. Lacey. Retired and lives in Kentucky now, but I think back on those days long ago where that chief's community or the master chief really makes sure that you don't step off the cliff and go in the wrong direction. So very good start in the military because of that, that leadership of the medical service corps, the, the mentoring, the chief's community that take you under the wings. I really feel blessed with that through my career. I've tried to pay back that mentoring and coaching to the young people coming up. Terry, during Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm, you deployed on the USS Nimitz. Can you tell us about that experience and how it shaped your view in general, but also about uh, medical readiness? So as a young lieutenant, after those two assignments, I'm starting to make it to the t lieutenant rank. And as an operational Medical Service Corps, you had really had two ways to go. You could have gone the Marine Corps route, a company commander, or you could go the blue side and you could go on the larger facility or larger uh, ships. The Nimitz was mine, aircraft carrier or an LHA. I was fortunate to get the, the Nimitz. I was the radiation health officer and the division officer for medical. The hospital ship has uh, 60 beds, an OR, 
two ICU rooms, isolation rooms, has about 40 corpsmen, five docs, flight surgeons, a surgeon, anesthesiologist, and it was a hospital afloat. 6,000 people on board, a moving city, an aircraft carrier 1,095 feet long, four screws, it'll do in excess of 35 knots. I wanted the blue side experience. So I was on during a time that we went to Operation Desert Storm and uh, getting ready. There's a whole cycle of readiness, of getting ready. On the medical side, you have four battle dressing stations that you have to have ready. You have a flight deck, battle dressing station, and you're constantly preparing for a mishap. And that's an aircraft carrier landing airplanes on a postage stamp. Lots of opportunity for things to go wrong. And we actually did. We had a F-18 came flying in. I think his airspeed indicator wasn't working properly. He was trying to land on the deck. And when he flew in, he hit the round down at the back end or the aft end of the ship. It took off the struts or the wheels. It popped up. His airplane caught the four wire. He ejected. So he's up in the air. He's gone to full power, 20 foot flames coming out the exhaust. And the plane stops and it goes over towards the superstructure. And the flight deck crew's all jumping up and trying to get the extinguish the flame, trying to turn the airplane off. He's parachute deployed, comes down, lands on the flight deck. And then that wind starts dragging him off the back of it. So flight deck crew, they come up there. We go to general quarters. My assignment was down at DC Central. My responsibility was to orchestrate the movement of casualties off the flight deck down into Maine Medical. Uh, and so we do a lot of preparing for those kind of events. So he lands on the flight deck and we get him up and onto a deck edge elevator, down to the mess deck, through the mess deck, and then down into Maine Medical. And general quarters is off, AFFF, the foam is all over the flight deck trying to get that plane done. And then when it was all said and done, he had a scratch on his shoulder. Unbelievable, that event. But if you just think about all of the things that go on in preparation for a deployment, and a, a lot of, a big part of that is medical getting prepared for what may happen. So from that day forward, I always thought medical readiness uh, was a thing that we need to prepare for. In the hospital setting, same thing. We do mass casualty drills and uh, all of that. We also did, about that time, this is in the 89 to 91 time frame. If you remember, uh, the USS Midway had a big, had a couple of explosions in the 1990 time frame, mass casualties, burn patients. And then, and as we were doing our workups, I took that um, after action report and ran it and then changed the way we set up our mass casualty decks with more capability, right? Silvadine, IV bags, O2 tanks, just to prepare that. And then when they, they do a, what's called a medical readiness evaluation, when they came out, they said, wait, why'd you do this? And I said, well, hey, I, 
I read the Midway Fire After Action Report and it goes, good on you. And so I'm thinking that that's important. Lessons learned and being prepared and what do you do uh, for the next event? And how do you make yourself better? And what do you learn from the events that happen in your daily duties? So what a great experience to be on the Nimitz in Desert Storm and to, to go to that event itself. So let's fast forward about 10 years. Tell us about your experience about being in the Pentagon on 9-11 and the impression that made on you and how that influenced your future military medical service. In the 2000 to 2002 timeframe, I served as the special assistant to health affairs at the Pentagon in the sector of the Navy's office. And my job was coordination between the secretary's office and the BUMED headquarters. And then on 9-11, 22 years ago, all of a sudden, it's a day that still vividly in my mind, I'm always reminded when Alec Jackson sings that song, Where Were You When the World Stopped Turning? That always comes to mind that day. My, it was early in the morning. My office was 5D825, fifth floor D-ring between the eighth and ninth the corridors. And my wife had called. She was working in Crystal City at the time and called. She said, hey, did you see the planes? I said, what are you talking about? She, the planes flew into the world or the plane flew in the World Trade Towers. And I go, I don't know what you're talking about, but walked across the hallway to, and watched CNN and watched the plane, a re recast of that plane flying. Holy moly, what is going on? And then, then the second plane, and then I'd gone back over to my office and everybody's talking about like, what is, what is going on? And at about that time, the plane hit the Pentagon. And everybody jumped up like, what is that? And then we began evacuating the building. So you can imagine 23,000 people all trying to get out of the Pentagon at the same time and going down the stairs. We were on the fifth floor going down and then going out to North Parking. And everybody says, well, I'm out of here. I'm leaving. And I said, well, I'm going back in to medical because that's my duty. You know? So I went back into Maine Medical and it was mass chaos, as you might expect. And I said, hey, can I help? And they said, get that O2 tank, and take it outside. So got the O2 tank, went outside and began sort of helping others set up the, the triage area. When it first started, we went actually went into the courtyard at the Pentagon and we were over by the corridor where the smoke was coming out. And a lot of people were standing around. This is before the plane had uh, crashed in Pennsylvania. But everybody, I remember General Carlton, who was the Air Force Surgeon General was there. Admiral Madison, who was the Deputy Surgeon General of the Navy was there. And you could see people really coming together. General Carlton was doing a good job of trying to orchestrate and get some order and set up triage capability. The civilians were there, stretcher bearers and the like. All the things that we have trained for in the past. The Nimitz comes to mind. The hospitals that we train uh, for these events came to mind. 
And so we stayed there for quite some time, but no casualties came that way. So we went back out to the north parking area and we actually got some casualties out. And what there was a general, I think it was an army first sergeant, I believe, that he had smoke inhalation. He was coughing, coughing, coughing. There was a burn patient that I thought was a mannequin, really just the first time I had seen that. And then there was a, a hip fracture. So we were, we had set up these triage areas. Some ambulances finally arrived over on that side, north parking side, and everybody picked up their casualty and went across the road to, to load them up. The, the burn patient went and the hip fracture went, and my patient was still still there. And I said, okay, bring them back over. Let's keep them comfortable or what are we going to do? And there were no more ambulances coming over that I remember, right? And, and so I said, hey, does somebody have a van or something? Can we take him to the hospital? I think a major raised his hand and he goes, I got a van. I go, can we take him? And he goes, sure. So he got him. And then I asked for, I said, hey, is there a nurse? Can you, can you go with them? Nurse said, yeah, I'll go with them. So off they went. And then I think our, the team that was there went around to where the, on the side, where the plane actually went in to the building. And at about that time, Fairfax County was arriving, beginning to set up the triage tents, red, yellow, green, casualty boxes and all that. And so I just volunteered to help pick up things and put things in, in position. So I stayed there till about six o'clock that evening and nothing else was happening. No more casualties. And my wife was in Crystal City. So off I went walking over by Pentagon City Mall and walking straight down the hall, down the, down the road. Cause there was no traffic and you could, all the buses were parked and I walked straight there without seeing a car, probably a mile and a half or two miles away. But the plume of smoke was still going. And that's a day I just never forget. But it really, if you think about all the training that we do in the military, in the hospitals, preparing for the mass casualty drills, in the operational environment, preparing for those, those things stick with you. Terry, you've served in several command roles throughout your career. What would you say was one of your biggest leadership challenges and how did you handle it? I will tell you, so I was the EXO in Pensacola with uh, Admiral Nathan. I learned a lot from him. Uh, and then my command tour, what, I had two command tours. One was Naval Hospital Okinawa, Japan, and my other one was Navy Medical Center, Portsmouth. One of the leadership challenges I remember early on in my tour was I hadn't been in Okinawa very long, and I was hearing patient safety, patient safety. And for a commanding officer, you hear those, those words, alert goes off, right? Patient safety, what do you mean? And so up on our eighth floor, eighth deck, we had an OB delivery area. And so I went up and asked what's going on here. And there was a lot of concern about safety for the patients, the mothers and the babies. And I said, okay, then. I met with the staff. I was up there about seven o'clock, changed the shift. So I got both shifts and just listened to them and what their concerns 
were. My XO went with me and I said, okay, let's, let's make a list of all those things that we need to do so that we are comfortable up here in this environment in the state. The makeup of the suite up there was uh, L-shaped. So if you were in one exam room, you didn't know, if you were in exam room five, you didn't know what was going on in exam room one, because it was just, you didn't have disability. Then you had some fetal monitoring, wasn't up to par. We had maybe one monitor. They said, we need more monitors. I said, easy. Let's put them down this hallway, put them down that hallway, put them in the break room, wherever you want them, let's do it. So we need someone to monitor the front desk. Let's do it. The code white capability, let's practice that so that in the case of the emergency, we'll be ready. So that this whole list that they had, we wanted to, to make sure that we address that list from a leadership perspective. So the staff knew that we were concerned and we were listening to them. And so we did that. And I think it, that helped ease the pain with or feeling of patient safety. And then I always made it a, a standard when I was doing my walk arounds that that was one of my stops to go see how they're doing. So from a, from a leadership perspective, I paid a lot of attention to patient safety, quality, risk management, and always was attuned to any any things like that, that might, that might come up. So some, from a leadership perspective, I would say there's some things you can delegate and there's other things you better be involved in and trust your gut on, on those kind of things. So that's one of the, one of the things that I remember most about Okinawa. Well, I will tell you one more. Remember Fukushima and the nuclear accident and the tidal wave. So I was Okinawa then that's the nine to 11 time frame, And we went into planning for the evacuation of U.S. citizens from mainland Japan. And we were one of these receiving sites. And I knew that it was, it was going to get a lot of visibility. And so we were doing our preparation. We were doing two things. One, uh, Neo evacuations out. And we also had an actual event where they early returned about 64 people, 20 pregnant females with families, Army, Air Force, Navy, out of mainland Japan. They elected early return and they were coming to Okinawa. And so I knew that was going to get some visibility. And so I staff, tasked my staff to develop a plan. We're going to go meet them. We're going to go get them. We're going to feed them. We're going to schedule appointments for them. We're going to bed them down. And then we're going to maintain close contact with them. And the staff really responded to that. But we put a, a dock in the air to go up there with them in case something happened. We made the base paper and had a lot of inquiries after that event. But that was a, another one of those cases that stands readily in my mind. And what a great experience. And the staff really responded to that event as well. All 20 pregnancies were delivered at the hospital and everything was good. Is there a leadership principle that you know now that you wished you knew much earlier in your career? I think one is trust. As a leader, you really have to trust your people. Uh, you can't micromanage. And uh, that's probably one of maybe one of my pitfalls, but I'm a very trusting individual. And so I think I, I 
displayed that, talked to my staff in a way that bred that trust in our whole command. So if they believe that you trust them, they, they're apt to be more honest and open with you. So I think from a leadership principle, that's a good principle to, to address in your tour. Terry, you, you served as Navy Medical Service Corps Chief, Director of the Corps. What was the biggest challenge facing the Navy Medical Service Corps during that time, and how did you address it? So I served, I was the 17th Director of the, of the Medical Service Corps for the Navy. Medical Service Corps has about 31 specialties, one corps, healthcare administrators, allied health professionals, all those specialties. And during my my tenure, I think it was 2012 to 15, it was really a time the MHS is changing and we're, we're trying to move more towards consolidation. We were beginning to talk about DHA and what that might look like. So with that change, the Medical Service Corps, we had very good career paths for all those specialties. And we had specialty leaders that were assigned to each of those specialties. But they were very concerned with the changes. What did that mean for them, right? Will I still have a career path? And later on, uh, with the DHA and the Management Administration, which is 2018, even then it came back around of, hey, will I have a career uh, in the Navy? So I think each of the core chiefs would end up battling or trying to communicate and, and to help the staff in the core say, it's going to be okay, right? We, we ch- we've been changing forever. We'll adapt and it's going to be all right. It was always about performance and we just had to continue to, to reiterate that. Promotion boards always, when you did your retrospective on the promotion boards, it really was about performance. Um, and you just had to make sure that the, your community understood that. But it was a great experience. I'm very proud to have been uh, the Corps Chief uh, for my, my tenure. So one of the other interesting jobs that you held was that you were the director of the Tidewater Multi-Service Market Office. And that's dealing with military treatment facilities commanded by each of the three services. Tell us a little bit about your leadership approach and style when you're working with those different cultures and are any of those lessons applicable today with the DHA? Yeah, my multi-service market experience goes way back to 2002 to 2005. And as you remember, we used to have 12 lead agents and we downsized the lead agents way back when to to multi-service markets, right? And I was at Madigan, Region 11, General Farmer, General Dunn, and they became a multi-service market. So the lead agent had the downside. We went from 55 people to 12 people, and it was about coordination on the direct care side and getting everybody moving in the, the same direction. So that was a beginning. And then fast forward... <laughs> And never, never shall I see a multi-service market again. Forward to 2014, 15, I become the Tidewater E MISM, the enhanced multi-service market. So an evolution of the multi-service market phase occurs. I become the lead. And my approach with that was I really didn't need to be the leader with direct authority, 
what I believed was unity of effort. And we, all three of us, had a, should have, and, and I tried to build the common vision of where we're going, where are we going? And so I didn't have to tell you where to go. You were signing up to be a part of that and you would have a part of those activities to make it successful. So I, I approached it that way and I think it worked uh, pretty well. And even later I became the EMISM leadership chair underneath the MHS governance structure. And that my approach with that was the same, was that unity of effort. Here's what our headquarters wants us to do. Here's what the Assistant Secretary of Defense and Health Affairs is, Dr. Woodson is trying to get us to do. So how do we go about getting after it, right? And if you remember that we used to have the MHS metrics and I tried to get us aligned so that we would, would attack those. And I was trying to get the Tidewater multi-service market to be number one, but it was, it was a unit of effort for everybody. And then alignment, alignment with what the MHS needed us to do was a, another area that I was trying to approach or push forward. Related, is, is, I'm sure you're aware, the, the DHA now has nine networks, they're called, and each led by a, a flag officer, a general officer. What advice would you give to these nine DHA directors? What were your thoughts on that? I think one, communication. The flags, they've got to be out and about, touching base, setting the priorities, and then following up. When I was the EMISM guy in Tidewater, some of the feedback I got from my commanding officers were that they appreciated, you know, I, I used to do memos setting direction, but they appreciated knowing what was important and what I wanted them to execute. And I haven't forgotten that. So if I were to go to the, the nine network directors, that would be one thing I would say. Make sure they understand what the direction is. Don't let them fend for themselves. Get them aligned for the MHS and go forth and do. What advice would you give the MTF directors that fall under these networks? Sort of the same thing. I mean, your staff is saying, DHA, on the Navy side, we have these NMRTCs, Navy Medical Readiness Training Commands. I'm assigned to the hospital. What does that mean for me? The Army has the medical readiness commands and they send them the staff over to the hospital. We need to understand the MTF directors needs to help the staff understand, hey, this is why we're here, right? We're, our job is to integrate readiness. Our job is to be ready. And we're using the MTF to make, make us ready. And then on the other side, we're, we're here for that healthcare delivery which helps us in that readiness mission. But think about what hat you're wearing and be able to communicate that. The MTF directors now are, they're dual-hatted, right? They're, they work for their service on the readiness piece and they work for the DHA on the MTF director piece. And there's Title 10 responsibilities that go on with that. And early on, it was, hey, as we're trying to figure out how does this work, together, one of the things I tried to stress to the MTF COs and the MTF directors is, hey, what hat are you wearing when you're taking action on certain things, right? There's 
base responsibilities, there's MTF responsibilities, there's service responsibilities. So we need to figure out, all of us need to figure out how are we going to work that going forward? We need to understand what our roles and responsibilities are and who we're reporting to. One example I, I give is at one of our commands, we had a, an airplane ran off the runway. And so the question is, what hat are you wearing when you're responding to that, right? The first, first part, that's on a, on a base. And then the second part, you're in the MTF and you're responding from an emergency perspective to the DHA. So you really have to figure out which hat you're wearing. Or you could just blast, blast all the information to everybody. But then that, I don't think that helps us figure out what the roles and responsibilities are for the different hats. So it was a good experience. We're still learning that for the DHA. The, the services need to learn how do, they, how do we work together. And I, I think we are continuing that journey. So how would you counsel somebody who is in leadership position and they have different hats if there is a conflict in priorities between the hats that they're wearing, how does one resolve that? We need to understand what those conflicts are, right? Early on, I, there were, I remember there was 13 functions that were service responsibilities versus what DHA was going to do. I think that, that list, Jeff, you may, may remember, that list expanded. And it was really about trying to get to a point where do we draw the line? And it, it's not a red, it's not a hard line, but you got to understand whose responsibility and accountability goes with what function, right? Active duty care, is active duty care a service function or is active duty care a DHA function? And how do we work those things out? And then if at an MTF director, we need you. We need you to, to raise those issues up the chain so that we can help help resolve that. So you currently serve as the uh, TriWest Senior Advisor to the President and CEO and uh, TRICARE Program Officer. What are the challenges and opportunities as DHA transitions to the next TRICARE contracts? First, I'm very proud to be part of the TriWest team, the managed care support contractor. My boss uh, sets a great vision for us on we are here to serve. May the work that we do honor those that we're privileged to serve, right? And we'll do whatever it takes to support the MTFs and the DHA, taking, delivering the KSAs, the knowledge, skills, and abilities, delivering care to the beneficiaries. So we're very pleased to be doing that. So as we go forward, I want to make sure that the, the services, DHA, understand that that's our vision of support. I think the contract requirements are a little bit different than they were from the previous contract. We need to help educate the MTF directors of what those changes are, right? We can't go in with the MTF directors thinking we're just coming in, we're a new contractor, but we're going to do things the old way, right? I, that, I think every transition has those challenges uh, with it. And then if you think about our population that we have in the services, they're very young, lots of deliveries. We need to help educate those beneficiaries out there of what the health plan is all about and how to, to work inside that health plan. Then one of the challenges that I see is making sure 
that we deliver access for our beneficiaries. Never shall we forget access, 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 because they expect it. And so those are some of the challenges I see as we get, get started with the transition coming up. So as a managed care support contractor, TriRest is an example. How can you best serve as part of an integrated system of readiness and health? And I'll ask you to speak specifically to Ready Medical Force. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a good one. When I was on active duty, I was part of the, the team with all the NDAA 17 changes. And NDAA 17 had Article 725. That, guess what that was? KSAs, Knowledge, Skills, and Abilities. So when I was on active duty, it was like, how are we going to prove that we're ready? And a lot of work was done on the KSAs. And what are those kind of reps and sets and skills do you need so that you can generate enough work so that you're ready so that when you do go downrange, it's not the first time that you see that kind of injury and that you're capable and quickly able to go in and take care of it. I think that was part of the criticism of Iraq was that we weren't quite ready at the beginning. We, at the end, we were 98 survival, survival rate. Part of that was changing how we did things, but a lot of that was getting the skills for those amputations and gut wounds and blast injuries and those kind of things. So as a as our contract, they built in those KSA work. And one of the things that our job is, is to support the MTFs in getting those KSAs. So early on, we'll, we'll be asking them, how do we help you? What are those KSAs you're going to deliver in-house? And what are those KSAs that you need us to go out into the network and establish relationships so that you can get those reps and sets that, that you need. We're organizing to do that. That'll be part of my, my role. And I, I'm looking forward to learning how far along the services have come in getting, getting to that point. And I really want to be able to track and report back to the MTF. Here's what's out in the, in the field. Here's how we can best support you side for that medical ready. So a lot of those Ready Medical Force metrics were developed during operations in Afghanistan and Iraq. And now we're looking at things going on in Ukraine with Russia, and it may be a completely different paradigm of what we're facing in the future. From your perspective, being in uniform and what you're doing now with military health, is there anything that we could be doing now to be better prepared for a different war that we may face in the next year or 10 years or whenever? Well, I think we're doing the right thing. I think we're, we're getting back to taking a look at our, our structure, smaller, more agile units to be able to move around in theater. What is the patient evacuation routes and how do we do that in the future state? We learn from each war, different casualties. We need to be able to predict what those things might happen in the, in the future. What were those lessons learned from Afghanistan that we better be prepared for the chemical, biological threat? Where are we at with that? Are we prepared for that? 
we are not going to be able to evacuate or we should be able to prepare or should prepare. We're not evacuating from theater to Walter Reed next time, right? And we need to accept that and be prepared to hold casualties in theater longer. And we haven't really been, we haven't done that in a long, long time. But I think the right people are in place and they're looking at it from that perspective for the Navy, distributed maritime operations, long range. We've got a new hospital ship that's going to be able to move patients and do wartime surgery at sea. And that's a, that's a new way of doing, doing casualty receiving and things in our future state. So I think we're, we're on the right track with that, but we just need to be open and explore those, that full range of things that might, might occur in our future conflict. Chair, I'm going to ask sort of a, sort of a combined question here. What, what do you miss most about serving in uniform? And if you could also tie that into, if you were talking to a young Terry Moulton before you decided to join, what would you tell that individual about why they might want to consider doing what you had the opportunity to do? Well, I think, first of all, it's a great life. I've enjoyed wearing the uniform. I wish I never took off the uniform, but it's a young man's game. And I'm a little older than, than I was before, but just think, and I say this when I talk to people, you know, the opportunities that you have in the military are limitless, right? You, as a young medical service corps officer, for example, you get a lot of responsibility early on. You learn a lot. We do a lot of training for you and there are great experiences. You get to live all over the world. It, it's a fantastic lifestyle. I wish more people realized that. Those are some of the, the recommendations I have for them. When the history books are written 50, 100 years from now, how would you want your legacy recorded as uh, a member of Navy medicine? Well, I think one thinking Terry Moulton, he, that was a, a great naval officer. And Secondly, he was a good medical service corps officer. He really cared about people, cared about the Navy. He wanted to do the right thing for all involved. He was a servant leader. You know, I had a lot of great mentors in my career all the way up and still have mentors. I, I would like to be remembered as being a great mentor to so many as they came up. Well, we've been speaking with Rear Admiral Terry Moulton on Wardock's podcast. Terry, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us. And thank you for your service to this nation. Thank you very much. And thank you for the invite to be on Wardock's. And I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Wardock's. We sure hope you enjoyed it. Wardock's is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast and rate and review this episode, and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.